We're so glad you're here. We're in Mark chapter 8, doing Jesus stories. Mark chapter 8. I know, eight. Eight. I'm trying to learn the lingo. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm studying Lydia, uh, my, my secretary. In fact, I had to do that this week. I, I did a funeral for um, a long-term member of our church here, Dolores King, who died at 101. I had not gotten to meet her because I've only been here two and a half years. Um, is that right? Something like that. Um, and so she had not been well for the last several years. And so I, I asked for stories about her so I could put together a, a graveside service for her. And one of the things written to me was, she was always neat, very meticulous, that she could come in, here's the quote, from cutting the grass and look like she stepped out of a bandbox. And I went, okay. So I went in and I, I grabbed a couple of Southerners. I got uh, Catherine, Morrow, and Lydia in the hallway, and I said, interpret this for me. Catherine had not heard it, but she goes, Lydia, it was wonderful. She looked at me, she goes, you know, a bandbox. I went, Oh, no, that still does not reveal anything to me. So she, she had to look it up for me to understand it, but she's trying her best. Give, pray for Lydia. Remember we, uh, where we were, uh, 31 through 33. He tells him, I've got to die. I've got to be rejected by the elders. I've got to be killed and then rise again. And Peter took him aside and rebuked them. Peter looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I love Peter. If I was one of the apostles, I might have been Peter, because uh, he was very quick with mouth, slow with brain, and that can be me. Uh, even little things, such as, remember, Whenever the women tell them that the body is gone, John and Peter take off running. John gets there first. Why? John's young. But Peter goes in first. Why? Because John's smart. He stops at the edge and looks in. Peter just... That's who Peter is. And I love Peter for it. But here, he says, you are slandering. You are... You're getting, you're messing up the plan here. What does the word Satan mean? Does anybody know? Accuser. Accuser. A slanderer. In what possible way was Peter slandering him? Intimating that Jesus had a choice in not following the plan. That he would be the kind of person that would make a choice to not follow the plan. Think about that. Um, it'd be kind of like going into you know, a D-Day invasion and you're going to be in the paratroopers and you're flying over and you're about to jump and you come over to a guy and now you need to jump. You, know, you, ha you have options in jumping. No, you don't have options. Jesus is saying, I don't have an option. Plus, you can't be a Satan unless it's tempting to listen. Jesus was also human. He wasn't happy about this. But he was joyful. He understood what needed to be done. 
So he's going to talk to them some more, but not just the disciples. He's going to call everybody in. He calls the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, Jesus just upped the ante quite a bit. Because Peter's saying, no, no, you can't die. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you're going to too. Hello. Because the whole crowd in, you got to know this. And when he said, pick up your cross and follow me, the people there would not have been thinking we need to be like Jesus. They would have been horrified. The cross was the most horrible symbol in the first century. And it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Romans would sometimes, to put down a rebellion, decimate a community. Decimate comes from their word, taking every tenth person at random and nailing them to a cross, lining the roads with screaming, writhing men that took days to die. And the families around the bottoms crying as the men die. And Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Pick up one of those, because that's what's going to happen. Doesn't sound like the consolation of Israel at this point, does it? Unless you understand that consolation means it's going to be okay in spite of what happens next. And we've really got to get that part. No matter what happens next, it's going to be okay. Look at verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I want you to think for a minute. It's kind of like the old story, and I'm sure it's just an old story, about the man that tells his sons, you need, you, you need to get up and do stuff. You know, well, why? Well, you need to get a job. Why? So you make money. Why? So that one day you can retire. Why? So that then you can rest and relax. I'm doing that now. Sometimes we forget that the point of life is not what the commercials say it is. You know, we'll have a, <coughs> the uh, Raymond James commercials. I have nothing against the company. But it will come down to a life well lived. Means that they have stuff. You know, I'd like to have stuff too. I'm, I'm, all, I'm pro stuff. But that's not the point of life. If I'm, I'm looking now, and I, you know, I have several nice guitars, about half of what I used to, because I've given some away through the years, the last couple of years in particular. But I have some nice ones. And I, I, out of the four grandkids, and the fifth one's coming, one has shown a little interest. I got the feeling that these aren't going to be passed down for long. That's okay. My point is, if that's my life, that's going to be kind of pitiful. It's going to be short, short-lived. They're going to, you know, I'm, my biggest fear is after I die, my wife will sell my guitars for what I told her they cost. <sighs> Horrific loss. Anyway, oh, she's here. Hi, honey. Um, you can work all of your life to have a life and not have a life. He says, you're going to have to live for what comes next. To make your life have meaning, you're going to have to be willing to give it up first. 
Now think about that. In our own society, who do we honor the most? I would submit to you that we honor people like teachers who give up a lot and don't make much. And we honor first responders who put themselves at risk. We honor people who give up their life, don't we? Um, Jesus says, you might lose it in a horrific way, though. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I want, I want to be very careful as I do this next bit. Because all of us <coughs> who are here, you speak, you turn your head from the mic. Now the mic follows you. Uh, it's attached to your brain. Um, all of us here are fabulously wealthy compared to the world. Understood? So what we try to do then is pick on somebody richer than us. It's kind of like if we're bad and somebody goes, you're being bad, we'll say, well, I'm no Hitler. Well, okay, fair enough. That's an easy bar to, you know, to work with. I hear of mega yachts 400 feet long with solid gold fixtures in the bathrooms. And I'm going, why? And I'm sure that some poor people in another country are looking at me saying, you have bedrooms you use for other purposes like sewing or office? Why? Why do you need that kind of room? So I get what I'm saying, please. But can there not come a time where you stack up so much stuff for you that your life and its meaning ends when you do? Now, I'm not a big fan of a lot of what Bill Gates has done with his life and his operating system has caused me to call upon the Lord many times. I'll give him that. I'll give him that. But I, I do respect how he and his wife have determined to give away it's something like 90-something percent of their wealth. Now, you might say, well, that still leaves them with billions. Fair enough. But they're still giving away when they didn't have to. And I appreciate that. Now, I use Apple products, but to be very honest about it, Steve Jobs did not believe in charity and did not, and his corporation did not give to charity. And as far as I know, they still don't. But Microsoft did. Interesting to me, you have two billionaires, one saying it's all about us, and I think their product is, is that's one I use, but over here, let's give it away. My point I'm trying to make is, we have examples around us of people building for us, for us, for us, for us. If you live in Tennessee, drive the back roads and see the mansions that are deserted. Vines growing up inside, windows broken. Somebody, that was their mansion. That was their life. That was their meaning. And when they died, that all went away. Nobody wanted it. The kids didn't want to live there. I talked to a real estate agent when we were first moving here saying, you know, houses are very expensive. If you want a farm, though, they said, we can sell you a farm. I don't want a farm. And her point was, people are dying and their kids don't want a farm. So they're splitting the land. And so it just sits there. And we've been here for two and a half years, and we drive every day by farms that have had for sale signs on them since we got here. Live for something that's going to outlive you. That's what Jesus says. But if you do it, 
it might be a cross you have to carry. Think, contrast this with the modern Christian concept. How was church today? You know, they sang those two songs I really hate. Really? Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, pick up your comfy chair. But we still think it's about us, right? We still do. And in fact, C.S. Lewis put it far more eloquently than this, but his point was, God's main goal for your life is not to make sure that you have a good day. How hard is that to hear? It is for me, because I specifically ask for good days. Do you? You Let this be nice. Let my kids all have straight teeth, whatever. We were watching a British show, a Scottish show, actually, on Netflix last week. And the daughter complained to the father, saying, I want American teeth, not Scottish teeth. And I went, yes, I understand. (laughs) Yes, I do. All of my kids have orthodontia. I never got it, because I'm British. Evidently, we... We, um, we resist, you know, we're allergic to it. What are you going to do with your life that will outlive you? But it's worse than that. Because the way you may have to live your life may involve a cross, not comfort. Now, why would he bring the crowd in for this? I think it's to thin the herd. I guarantee you some people left. Uh, This is not what I'm hearing. Not what I want. Do preachers on TV tell you this? Oh, I got a mass mailer yesterday. I'm on somebody's mailing list. It was from a religious group I'd never heard of, and it was quite the mailing. It had all kinds of seminars I could go to because we're living in the last days. they think so. And it was the most interesting evangelistic ploy I'd ever seen. You were to buy a thumb drive, and it listed, there are hundreds of sermons on there, PowerPoint presentations and like about the gospel. You were to put it on your key ring, because, I'm not making this up, when you're raptured, they're going to steal your car, and they'll find this, and perhaps know of the Lord. I'm not making this up. What a ploy. They're going to steal your car anyway, so leave behind the message on the thumb drive. Wow. Why is it that everybody talks about us triumphing and nobody talks about our crosses? Anybody read the book recently, The Benedict Option? It's a new book. And I'm, I'm spending a long time on this, not much on Jesus' stories, and I apologize. But I feel, I feel like this is important. We, um, do you remember back in, what was it, 70s or something in America that Jerry Falwell did the moral majority? Was that 70s? Late 70s? Okay. Uh, I was in and out, mainly out during that time. Uh, because the idea was the majority of Americans are moral and Christian and are not approving of this. You can't say that now. You can't. Some people say we live in a post-Christian time. I'm not, I'm not really sure how to draw those lines. What I can tell you is that on every moral argument, 
the church has lost. Think about it. When it comes to moral arguments, we have lost them in our culture. The culture moved on. So what do we do? (coughs) Allergies, sorry. Um, The Benedict Option is one of three really important books out right now uh, talking about how do you respond. And the Benedict speaking there is uh, not Pope Benedict, but rather the Benedict who went off and formed a Christian community that served the greater community but was separate. And it talks about we need to disengage from politics, need to disengage from stuff. Not sure that I'm buying into all of it, but it is an important book, and if you're into that sort of thing, I would recommend that you read it. There are other options here, but the fact is, living for Jesus on this planet has never been as easy as TV preachers want to make it sound. Triumphalism doesn't always work. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Look at this next bit. If anyone is ashamed of me, ashamed of me, and my words, okay, there are two parts here, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's talk about adulterous. What does he mean by that? Does he mean people are sleeping around? No. No, I'm sure they were sleeping around. People do that. They always have. That's not what adultery means in Scripture. Sleeping around is adultery in Scripture, but that's not all that it means. Adultery means the breaking of covenant. For example, in Malachi, when a man covered his wife with violence, that was adultery. In other words, he beat her. That's adultery. In um, 1 Corinthians, and in Romans as well, but 1 Corinthians mainly, desertion is breaking of covenant. There are, all, there are different kinds of breaking of covenant. Uh, the prophet told them in the Old Testament, Jeremiah told them, that they had committed adultery with wood and stone. That means that they had worshipped other gods. They'd broken a covenant. When they made an agreement with, with Egypt, when they weren't supposed to, they were told they had committed adultery with Egypt. All right, you understand now? Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. When, when I die, if it's infectious, I have a list of people I'd like for you to send body parts to. Um, I was telling my wife, if I, get, if I got rabies, I have a list in my pocket of who I need to bite. Uh, my poor wife. I know you pray for her often. Um, moving on. This is... Um, when you've committed to Jesus Christ and yet you play footsie with the world, it's adultery. And how often do we do that? Notice I'm saying we, not you. I'm not, I'm not blasting you. I'm saying I'm right in the middle of this too. I'll find myself getting more excited about a new Apple product from the charity-less Apple Corporation. They may have changed, by the way. I just know what Steve Jobs' concept was. Um, I can sometimes get more excited about that. Not forever, but like this day than I should be about something which is going to be worn out and gone in a few years. So we have to just think about this. He says, are you ashamed of me, Jesus? I remember when I was in high school, and that was um, 
uh, late 60s, early 70s, it wasn't popular to be a Christian and mean it. You could go to church, but even then you weren't supposed to talk about it. And it was kind of like two spies meeting each other. You know, you're at, you're at the locker and you open up the locker and there's a Bible in there and somebody goes, yeah, what, what's that? What's kind of a Bible. Oh, you Christian? A bit. I, I, I'm a Christian too. Really? Where do you go? It's like two spies meeting each other there. And it, it hit me as a teenager that I wasn't as proud of this as I needed to be. It's kind of like saying, you know, are you married? Well, you know, a little. <laughs> Don't do that to Jesus. And then of his words, I would submit to you that it's not a real problem right now that we're ashamed of his words. Our problem is we don't know them. We know more about church organization, and to be fair, we know a lot more about the words of Paul than we know about the words of Jesus, because our particular religious tribe is focused on Paul, and Fourth Avenue is one of the churches in our tribe which has shifted back to Jesus. There are many. But we, we kind of, you, before I even got here, you were leading that charge. And it's a real shift, isn't it? Because Paul, if you read Paul without Jesus, you get permission to look down on people. But if you read Jesus and then read Paul, you understand, no, I can't. I can judge me, but not another. Please understand, I'm not dissing Paul here. I'm saying we listen to Jesus we got to know his words. Uh, I did not do this. Josh Graves did. I didn't know that he was going to be leaving within a year when he did it. I was just thinking, wow, what a brave guy. But Josh Graves and I worked together in Rochester, Michigan. For um, I was there 10 years. He was there before me, left before me, so I'm not sure how long he was working there, but he's from that region. But he sat down with our shepherds once and said, how many of you can say the Ten Commandments, all ten, in order. And it got quiet. He said, what about the Beatitudes? Can you name all the Beatitudes? And I think between all of them, they could get it. And his response was, we keep telling people we follow Scripture. We don't know it. And I was in there going, I think he has another job lined up. You know, <laughs> I, bet his, I bet Kara's is running the car for him right now. But is it not true? It's not a matter of not being, uh, of being ashamed of his words. It's that most of us don't know his words. We need to keep reading the Gospels over and over and over and over. Albert, I love Albert. Who doesn't love Albert? He's talking to me today. His son, John, who's never been married, is 52, is getting married this week. And, and Albert's going to do it. He said, there's only going to be four or five of us down by the Harpeth River. And he's excited. And as soon as Albert starts talking about his kids, what does he do? Now, his kids are 50 and starts bragging on his kids. He says, John was a young man. He memorized a Sermon on the Mount, didn't miss a comma. <laughs> I love that phrase. I'm thinking, I didn't memorize this Sermon on the Mount. But I did memorize the five acts of worship, the five steps of salvation, how to fight the Baptist. I knew all that. I wish I had started with the Sermon on the Mount. I might have turned out decent. 
we need the words. And then he warns them, their time is short. He said, I, he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see, what the kingdom of, see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Sadly, there are some Protestant groups that say that Jesus was wrong here, that our resistance to him was so unexpected and so overwhelming that he put in a stopgap measure called the church and the kingdom will come later. No. The church and the kingdom are the same. And in fact, the nation of Israel and the kingdom were the same at that time. God is continually, when I say the nation, I'm not talking about the political unit which now exists. I'm talking about the Jewish people. Uh, God has continually had a kingdom. He said it's going to come with power. Anybody remember when Jesus said it was going to come and then it did? You people. You know this. You're allowed to talk. Yes, Pentecost. Thank you. Every so often, people. I wonder about the medication you're on. Or which you might should be on. Um, Yes, it came with power. So he's telling them, you'd better make up your mind. I was in high school. Um, struggling a bit because I was the only Christian in school. That meant I was the only person going to the Church of Christ. I believed that. Did any of you grow up believing that? I believed it. And so I was always under assault and never allowed to really, you know, link up with the pagans. And our high school teacher, Emma Turner, um, Irma Turner, rather, um, old lady, I don't know, she might have been 50, but I mean, I, she's probably older than that, but I mean, to me, it was like, you know, tell me about Noah, was he a good guy? You know, it, it, was, it was one of those. And she was, our biology teacher was teaching us evolution, and there was no Jesus in it, or maybe at all. Well, a few in the crowd were Christian folk from churches that weren't really buying into all of this. Now, again, please, we're not going into the rabbit hole of evolution right now. My point is, regardless of how you feel about it, that's where we were at that point in our lives. I couldn't really join them much because while they were right on this subject, they were wrong on everything else. And so how do you, I couldn't be unequally yoked, but I was concerned about the way this was going. I finally went up to our teacher later, Ms. Turner, and I said, um, can I just ask you a question? And I, because I talked to her, I said, you know, some of us believe something different here. And she goes, well, I, I know that. She goes, but this is the curriculum. This is what I'm to teach. And this is what I teach. And I looked at her and I said, but what do you believe? I have no idea to this day how I had the nerve to ask that question. And she looked at me. She thought for a moment. She goes, I'm not really sure what I believe yet. And I wish I hadn't, I wish I'd stopped it. But the next words out of my mouth were, you'd better hurry. Because I really thought she was right on the edge of dirtdom, you know, the, being fitted for the wooden suit. I mean, she, she was right there. Um, you know, she's going to spend a long time looking at the lid. She needed to get this thing right. British people are a little bit more morbid, perhaps, but um, you live in a country where it's always raining and the music sounds like someone's slowly backing over a cat. Um, 
Jesus is telling him, you'd better hurry. And isn't that true of all of us? People are afraid of flying. Now, I'm, I'm uncomfortable flying because I always know it's going to be me next in YouTube being drug off. But I'm not afraid of flying. Flying is still by far the safest way to travel. But we're afraid of that. We hop in our cars. We're not afraid of that. Cars will kill you. Sickness will kill you. Accidents will kill you. You want to be safe, don't be home because most fatal accidents occur within a mile of the home. It's deadly. Live somewhere else. <laughs> what I'm saying is a lot of us think we have time. Cammie and I are having a house built and uh, we're going to downsize a wee bit and move closer to the building so that we can walk there, <laughs> walk from Thompson Station on festival days. They, um, and the, uh, the mortgage guy, who's a member of the church, many of you know him, great, great guy, looked at me and he goes, how, how much longer do you plan to work? Well, I told him, you know, another 10, 12 years tops is what I'm thinking, because, you know, it's only Sundays, so it's not a lot of wear and tear. Uh, I can probably pull that off. But I'm very much aware that I might not make it to tonight. That's why I have insurance. You know, I, I think I'm aware that I might predecease Cammie, and she needs a shot at dating a higher class of person, so let's put some money in there. Let's, let's get that set up. It may be shorter time than you think, and that should not be depressing. The next two days I'll be teaching up at Ohio uh, State. I always say that, and then I have to back up. The state of Ohio has now taken over all the programs, and so it's at the Nationwide Convention Center, downtown Columbus, and all the universities come. But I've been on staff at Ohio State for 18 years, and so that's why I keep saying that. One of the things, I'm, the classes I'm teaching these people uh, is on ethics, and my title is The Universal Journey, and it's going to be about death and limited life. But limited life is not depressing. It's why it makes it valuable. Think about it. You ladies who have been married, uh, you probably got a ring with a wee rock on it. He told you it was a diamond. Let's just go with that. Let's not, let's not be going to check these things out. Let's go in faith. But why would he do such a thing? Because it's rare. That's why he didn't put a band-aid on there and draw a star. We got band-aids. Diamonds are a bit rarer. We value life because it's limited. Think about that. Think about it. Um, let's say that you're driving down 31. No, let's make it longer. You're going to drive to Ohio, which means you've got to go through Kentucky. That's approximately an 18-hour construction zone, right? Now, you're driving through going, I hate this, because there's nothing to see but trees, and you've seen them, and you just go, ah, and then God speaks to you, and let's just say he speaks to you, and you can handle it, and he goes, when this drive ends, so do you. All of a sudden, the drive becomes pretty precious, 
It's like, oh, look at that orange barrel. That's my favorite orange barrel I've ever seen. I'd like to circle back and see that one again. Oh, look at that one, even cuter. That's a cuter one right there. I need a picture. You would be driving around slowly, begging people to pour petrol in and throw a sandwich in the window because it's precious now. Jesus is saying, you'd better make your decision now. Don't put this off. Don't be feral. One of the weirdest things in the world. Frogs everywhere. To me, it's hilarious. They worshipped a frog-headed god named Hecate, who was uh, the main god of the midwives, whose job it was to kill the little Hebrew boys. So God basically says, hey, you like frogs? And he just put them everywhere. They couldn't walk without killing a frog. That's a problem because killing a frog was a capital offense in, in Egypt because it was an offense against their gods. So they're all over there, right, 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 just everywhere, just driving people crazy. Moses comes in tells Pharaoh, do you want to get rid of the frogs? Just tell me, I'll get rid of the frogs. And Pharaoh says, come see me about that in the morning. Really? One more night with the frogs? But that's what humans are like. So Jesus is saying this is going to be tough. It very well may be humiliating, painful, but you've got to be willing to lose your life. Are you ready? Are you in? Are you in? It gives your life purpose and meaning. Um, Ronald Reagan, and I wish I could quote this, gave a speech to a bunch of Marines in which he talked about what he had been in his life. And he said, at the end of my life, I can say many things. You know, I was a union president. I was a president of the United States. I was governor of California. He says, I have a whole lot of things I can brag about, but there's one thing I cannot say. I can never say I was a Marine. And that kind of resonated with me when I read that speech. Somebody gave me a book of speeches of presidents, and um, people were always giving me books. I'm not encouraging that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, um, the thought of, and what he was trying to say was, you guys, you know, I served, but you put your life out there. And it's a different way of serving. It's not just Marines. Again, could be teachers, first responders. Um, could be shepherds. People, you don't know how much time your shepherds give up to lead the church. The number of meetings they're in, the prayer times, the visits, staggering. I've been asked twice by congregations if I'd consider being a shepherd, and I went, nope. And they'd look at me and say, why? And I'd say, well, you have to like people. That's a problem. But another thing is, I'm not sure I have that, that en enough love to be a shepherd, to be honest, because it, it's a sacrifice. And so he's saying, you want to follow me? Find a way to lay it down. So I've talked a lot, but especially about that shortness of life making it valuable. I hope that helps somewhat. Um, anything else before we move on to the next wee story? Because it is the pivotal story. All right, we can only introduce it but here we go. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. Are you allowed to have best buddies? Yeah, you are. Led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. 
There he was transfigured before them. It's a weird word. It means reshaped in front of their, own, their eyes. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking to Jesus. Boom! <laughs> All your heroes. I don't know who your heroes are. And they might be superheroes. I'm not really into the Marvel comics type and DC things that people go, oh, it's a new movie, and they're so excited. Nah, it's all right. Um, I'm, you know, I, I want a superpower of being able to get out of bed and, and happy. That's all I'm looking for. The, um, and, but you know, if, whoever your heroes are, the entire pantheon's right there. Moses and Elijah was a law and the prophets. They were so excited. They could barely stand it. So Peter says... <laughs> It is, it is good for us to be here. You know, woohoo! Let us put up three shelters. Now, you don't really get that. A shelter was a temporary place of worship. Remember a tent, tabernacle? They even had a holiday they called the Festival of Tents, where you would put them up as a way to, to honor your God. Let us put up three. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Do you see that? In your Bible, does, is that in parentheses? What that means in the NIV is that was most likely written in the margin by a monk sometime and eventually worked its way into the script. Probably not written by Mark. Doesn't matter, but now you know. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Do you get the point? This last Tuesday, I was in Memphis at the Sycamore View Church. Josh Ross is doing a series there once a month on a topic of um, some controversy, controversy, that's the way you pronounce it, by the way, um, but also a, a need and meaning, and it can be on drugs or the like, and this time was on faith and doubt. And, and chiming in via video was Mike Cope. Many of you have heard of him. And then they had two local speakers, one a pharmacist on why he believed, and then a young lady who suffers from chronic serious depression on belief when you, you struggle with depression. And then they had me up there for an hour and a bit doing question and answer on faith and doubt. And by the way, if you're wondering, go to Sycamore View Church of Christ, their Facebook page, it's up there. Uh, the audio is poor, but they're working on that. But it's up there. And one of the questions asked me was, how do you deal with the fact, the fact, I love it when that's in a question, that the Old Testament God is not like the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is so mean and judgmental, and the New Testament God is so sweet and nice. How do you deal with that? And I realized this is going to be sent out everywhere and I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble. And here comes the hate mail. But I have a rule. If I'm asked a question, I answer the question. So I talked to them about, when you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, it's easy to get confused. God hates Moabites, loves them. Hates them, hate, loves them. Which one is it? He said, read Ezra and Amos. And as soon as you back to back, and as soon as you do, you realize these two guys would not get along in the same room. One says, get rid of your foreign wives. The other one goes, no, you better love them. Live up to your commitments. So I said, let me summarize it. I believe the Old Testament is an argument about God. 
And Jesus settles the argument. Hebrews tells us, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. And then I brought up that I grew up knowing far more about Paul than Jesus. If you don't watch out, by the way, you can let that pendulum swing to where you don't like Paul. Don't do that. Emphasize Jesus, and Paul looks pretty good. Who are we supposed to be paying attention to? I am. Um, in Second John, the, um, that little letter, it says, do not let anybody into your home. Don't fellowship with them if they don't bring with them the doctrine of Jesus. Years ago, I asked, I'm just not, not going to say the names, very important, prominent people in our religious tribe. And I was just a young man at the time. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, it means everything. I said, what do you mean everything? They said, everything. I said, virgin birth? They said, yes. I said, Old Testament miracles? They said, yes. I said, numbers listed this many this and this many that in the Old Testament? They said, yeah, absolutely. That's the doctrine of Jesus. I said, yes. I went so far as to say, when the Bible says that the bed of King Og of Bashan was a certain length, is that part? And they said, absolutely, every word of the Bible is a doctrine of Jesus. They haven't read the transfiguration story. Because there it says, you want to know about Jesus? Look at Jesus. That's why I said we got to know his words. We have to focus on the words of Jesus. So, when I was growing up, I was told... The scripture says, if we love God and love Jesus, we're saved. It says, no, no, it says, if you keep my commandments, and those commandments got huge. Anybody else have invisible books of the Bible? And it, We'd come to America to spend six months or the like, and it's hot over here. If you've ever been to Scotland, it's a, it's a real contrast. And it's just, oh, 90-something degrees, and it's humid, and they want me to cut the grass. I didn't own shorts, because that was for sinners. Seriously. I owned the first pair of shorts. I think Cammy bought them for me when I was 30, and I'm going, what do I do with these? You know, I, you know the kilt will barely reach down here, sweetie. And she's going, no, you know. It's, um, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find an argument. You know, if I show my knees, women will lust. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so it was, a hard, it was hard for me to get my head around. But we had rules. No mixed swimming, no dancing, no. Jesus said, love me and keep my commandments. And in the book of John, he keeps repeating, and my command is, you love each other. Let him settle the argument. Look at Jesus. And when you do, you look around and you'll see nobody but Jesus. Make sense? Let it play with your head for a while. We'll come back to this next week. Fair enough? Because it's not, it's not fair to hit this and run. Percolate this a bit. Come back with your objections. Because if you're like me, you have some. And objections, please understand, objections to what I see is never looked upon to me, by me as an attack. At all. Where two people always agree about everything, one of them is unnecessary. We need to sharpen each other, Right? So don't be afraid to talk. Just make sure that you agree with me. No, no. Don't be afraid.
Are we ready? You ready to go to the festival? All right, cheerio, run away.